the lesson that you get from Venezuela is very clearly this. Dictatorships come out of democracies. It does not have to be a group of men with aviator glasses and guns coming out of their military barracks and taking over things in a coup. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can be to foretell populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. A few days ago, I was at a big sort of fancy conference in New York, you know, one of those things that convenes a whole bunch of world leaders to talk to or mostly at an audience of CEOs and media leaders and so on. And one of the people who came to speak, as well as some more liberal pinup boys like Justin Trudeau and Emmanuel Macron, was the authoritarian pinup boy Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey. And it was quite chilling, actually, to be in the same room, I mean, a few yards away from one of the people who we've talked and thought about on this podcast, um, one of the people who are very much at the forefront of the illiberal international, who when asked, for example, about his treatment of journalists, was really unabashed in saying, well, they're not journalists at all, they're terrorists, um, some of them literally, you know, steal money and rob people, and just because they call themselves journalists, doesn't mean we should protect them. They should be in prison. I mean, it was a not very silver-tongued response to the question. And yet the audience sort of, you know, nodded politely. I don't think they liked or loved him, but but very, very polite and sort of, you know, there's a good round of applause at the end of his remarks. And, and it just made me think the degree to which we are sleeping through this moment still, the degree to which we're still thinking that everyday niceties should apply in a situation where somebody like Erdogan should not get a friendly reception from these people. It might matter if he didn't, actually. So I found that quite striking and disappointing and, and strange to be in that situation and thought I'd, I'd share my thoughts on that. Today I'm really excited to have Nicholas Casey join us on the podcast. Nick is a fabulous reporter, the Anders Bureau Chief for The Times, who works on a you know portfolio of countries, including Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, and the Guianas. And he's just a really interesting thinker about Latin America and the rise of populism there. And as somebody who doesn't know uh, that much about the region, I've learned a tremendous amount from this conversation in terms of thinking through some of the parallels and, and puzzling out whether Latin America might in some ways be the future of where the United States is going. Nick, welcome to the show. So listen, you're in the weird position that you were based in Venezuela and doing really important reporting uh, on the country and a bunch of other adjacent countries, including Colombia and Peru and uh, Ecuador as well. And then you were thrown out of the country and now you have to sort of report about Venezuela without being able to essentially set foot in the country. What happened? Why, why did you get thrown out? Well, I'd arrived to Venezuela in the beginning of 2016. And one of the principal goals we had at the New York Times was to cover this economic disaster, which was uh, taking over Venezuela. There were lines for food, but not just lines for food. There was often no food at the end of the lines. There were no basic medicines in a lot of the hospitals. I'm talking about things like penicillin, also not being able to get 
parts for x-ray machines when they you know, came apart. There was a huge crisis going on in the country, and we set about to cover it with photos, with text, any way that we possibly could, because this seemed to be the biggest story that was going on in the region. Now, when you look at where this economic crisis has come from, almost all lines point towards the government. This is a government which has uh, taken a very different economic tack than the rest of the region and the rest of the world even. This is a place where they've set the price of certain foods under price controls less than what it costs to produce them. So it means that a lot of people who are producing you know, basic agriculture, like corn, have stopped. Land is fallow. So after having covered this repeatedly for the New York Times, and many stories which came out on the front page after the government had repeatedly said that they were upset with what we were doing. At one point, they put my photo on television and said I was someone who was uh, working with the opposition, someone that was uh, a mercenary. They eventually took advantage of a point where I'd actually left the country for a little while and had come back and was crossing through the border. And they at that point stopped me. They pulled me aside. And they basically said that they were revoking my visa. And uh, usually they said there were problems with my visa, but it came down to the fact that they were not going to let me in with a working visa that I had that wasn't going to expire for still a number of months. And that was the last time that I've stepped foot in the country. I've not been able to get back. I've not been able to report. I haven't even been able to pick up my belongings. And the New York Times had been in uh, the country for more than a decade. This is one of the few times the New York Times has been kicked out of a country. And places that they have been kicked out are spots like Pakistan, not places in the Western Hemisphere, not Latin America. Um, but this is a different government than anyone has dealt with before. And how representative is that of a sort of larger repression in the country? I mean, one of the things that, that I'm trying to get a sense of, when you live in Venezuela today, I mean, certainly as Venezuelan, and, and then also as a foreign reporter, I mean, is it sort of that where you followed was the sort of other forms of intimidation? Or is it sort of in terms of your daily work, was it sort of smooth sailing and you could do what you wanted and then sort of the revoked visa was a real turning point? Venezuela hasn't gotten to the point that it's a complete police state like Iran or Cuba. And I don't think that's because it doesn't want to be. A lot of it's got to do with the fact that the state is crumbling just as the rest of the country is crumbling from this issue of not having enough money to do business. So when I was working there, we weren't followed so far as we know by the police. But you know, suddenly reporters can run into really dangerous situations with the state. There was a Venezuelan reporter who was going to cover protests and she was beaten by National Guardsmen. This was caught on tape. There have been reporters, one named Braulio Hatar, who last year was picked up by the Venezuelan intelligence agency and held in jail for months before he was eventually released, but he was he was held without charge. So while it's not at the level that it's this giant big brother that you're seeing, it's a state which will suddenly come out and attack journalists. And it has done so regularly and it can get very violent. I mean, this is a sad but really vivid way of sort of setting the stage for a conversation. But a lot of time nowadays when we talk about populism, in the press, on TV, now on newspapers, it's you know just about Donald Trump. On on this show, we try to broaden it out a little bit and talk about North America and Western Europe, Central America. But Latin America, in an odd way, is really disjointed from that conversation. We read your excellent uh, reporting from Venezuela. We hear a little bit about the situation there, but we really don't connect it back to 
the rise of populism here. So I would love to hear what you think we miss when we leave the Latin American experience out of this picture. Do you think there's actually connections between those two or is it really two quite separate stories? I think they're connected because I think that populism, both in Latin America and also in Western countries, has a really intimate relationship with democracy. It depends on what the democratic thread is in, in the region that you're looking at. If you're looking in the U.S., you're seeing populism arise from the right. But if you're looking at Latin America, which has got a long tradition of, of leftism, you're going to see that its form of populism that it develops is going to be much more left-leaning. That's, that's what you've seen often throughout Latin American history, especially with the rise of Hugo Chavez and some of the other populists in the area. These people didn't come out of nothing. They came often out of the democratic traditions that were there in a way that populist leaders are initially trying to get votes on scheduled elections. And then at that point, it, it turns into something much larger where you find these same individuals starting to railroad the very institutions that they use to get in control. Now, that same narrative you could see applied to many different places outside of Latin America. But in Latin America, it just happened to be that the people that rose out of the conversation were people from the left. And I would say that leftism and leftist ideology actually is in many ways much more compatible with populism because a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of some of the really hard left Marxist thinkers is very much about trying to create equality, trying to redistribute wealth, trying to give things to the poor, which are definitely in an area like Latin America messages that people you know, widespread really want to hear. So I think it's really interesting to think about why it is that left populism has risen in Latin America, whereas right-wing populism has proven much more influential in North America and, and Western Europe. And to give the left populism the due, part of the reason for that seems to be the sort of very deep problems in those societies that were longstanding, right? I mean, you had extreme economic inequalities in Latin America for um, most of the 20th century. You didn't have a very developed welfare state. And compared to somebody like Donald Trump, who comes into power and the first thing he does is actually to sort of, you know, militate for tax cuts for the wealthy and taking away uh, health insurance from a lot of people. You know, those governments walked the talk a little bit more in the first years. Even Hugo Chavez had some sort of real achievements to his name in, in his first years of rule, actually extending the welfare state, cutting the poverty rate. So I guess my question is, you know, how closely linked do you think are the achievements and the failings of the populists? You're right to say that um, Chavez, uh, during his early years, was saying things that no one else was saying in Latin America to begin with, and, and things that were really well received. And then within years, you suddenly actually see, saw him beginning to make good on a lot of his promises in terms of spending more for the social welfare state, in terms of spending more for education. Suddenly you saw the state making kind of a 180 turn and looking directly into the eyes of the poor, looking at the barrios, trying to figure out ways to develop them. Now, one of the reasons why you saw a rise in the success of this movement and a sharp decline um, had less to do with the rhetoric and more to do with the price of oil. When Chavez arrived to office, the price of oil was on the rise and was peaking at more than 100 dollars a barrel. So 
he was had basically an unlimited amount of cash practically mm. to institute what he wanted to do. You know, you turn a few years after his death to where Maduro is right now, he has a much lower price of oil. The state oil company has, has come apart because of mismanagement, and he doesn't have the resources that Hugo Chavez had. So kind of the difference that you're seeing between you know Chavez's populism, which was always backed by elections. He would be populist. He would hold an election. He would do more populism. He would hold another election. And what Maduro is doing, which is kind of a form of populism, which is becoming actually increasingly unpopular and, and seeing that he can't have elections, that he's having to rig elections, that he's having to put, you know, others in jail who are opposing him to avoid, you know, having to face them at the ballot box actually has less to do with the personalities of these men or their policies and a lot more to do with the funds that was supporting this project. The oil price started to collapse after years of economic mismanagement. I think there's a little bit of a tension in what he's saying, right? Because on the one hand, you're talking about the oil price and obviously that is a big part of his story. And it is what allowed Chavez to buy a lot of support and be relatively generous. And it's the reason why Maduro is in so much trouble now. But you also keep alluding to economic mismanagement. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question is, because there's a lot of people on on the left who want to sort of dissociate themselves from Venezuela, right? Who even after they cheerled Venezuela for many years want to say, well, I mean, you know, there's a particular set of things that have gone wrong in Venezuela. Some of them are about the oil price. Some of them are just about, you know, Maduro turns out to be a bad guy. But when we see the rise, say, of movements like Podemos in Spain or Syriza in Greece to some degree, Cinque Stelle in Italy, we really don't have to put them in the context of Venezuela and be worried about it because the reasons why Venezuela has failed is sort of really idiosyncratic, right? And then there's another set of views about it. Like, no, actually, these two things are connected. But sort of from the beginning, the economic policy was to bribe people into support rather than to invest into much more long-term sustainable things and so on. And, and so that's why I'm sort of trying to figure out how to think about this. I mean, is ultimately, can you have the good aspects of left populism? without the bad ones, or are the good aspects and both the economic failure and then the eventual political repression so bound up that you can't separate them out? I think that Venezuela is is a unique case among these countries that you've mentioned, and even others there in the region. But that said, I think populism has two forms of uh, negative consequences. One can be economic negative consequences when you've got leaders that are, are taking decisions like they have in Venezuela price controls, controls on currency, just trying to take total control of the economy and seeing that they can't. And then the other is just sort of like the destruction of institutions. And I think you've seen that much more widely throughout all of the examples. But the, the case of the economic destruction is very unique to Venezuela. I think that in Venezuela, you've got like the worst of the two going on right now. You have like a destruction of the economy combined with a destruction of the institutions. But that said, in other parts of Latin America, you've seen populists who have risen that haven't actually destroyed the economy. You've got the movement that got started by Rafael Correa in Ecuador, and also Evo Morales, who remains the president of Bolivia. These are two countries that had extremely fiery populist rhetoric, almost the same as, as Hugo Chavez, sometimes you know the same extent or even larger extents, depending on what the conversation was. But they're not in the position that they are in total economic collapse right now. So what do you think is different about Ecuador and Bolivia? Why is it that in those countries you've had the same destruction of political institutions, but actually economically those countries have been doing reasonably well, whereas Venezuela is in this incredible amount of self-inflicted economic pain at the moment? Well, I think it had a lot to do with the leadership. In the case of Ecuador, Rafael Correa 
was an economist. So he understood that there was going to be a balance between managing his own economy in the country and also delivering on some of the populist pro- you know, promises that he made on the campaign trail. And he seems to have been able to kind of balance that much better. They never went to the point where they were trying to control the price of every product in the grocery store. You know, they never did something like Venezuela did, which was ban the sale of dollars. They were able to kind of find a balance between having a free market economy when it came to their oil production and also, you know, start delivering on on social promises that they made, like uh, increasing education and increasing uh, welfare programs. With Korea in Bolivia, you saw very fiery rhetoric. You also saw sometimes much more moderated policy, especially on the economic front that they were taking. Whereas Chavez went, you know, full bore into somewhat deranged policies that were tried in Cuba and, and failed years ago. So, I mean, is it that actually they had similar rhetoric, but in the end, I mean, to put it crudely, one was sort of a socialist and one was, you know, one set of people was sort of robust social democrats. So, I mean, what in practice did the economic program end up looking like in Bolivia and Ecuador? In Bolivia and Ecuador, um, what you saw was a country that was uh, both countries are high in natural resources. Bolivia has a lot of natural gas. Ecuador is uh, one of the smallest OPEC countries. So in both cases, you you saw countries that were managing their economic resources. They were redistributing money, but they weren't going full bore into some of the more extreme policies that, that Hugo Chavez was going towards. I mean, one of the problems with Venezuela was the fact that over these years of the oil bonanza, the country did not save a cent hardly and is now incredibly indebted right now. This wasn't the same. You didn't have this to the same extent in Ecuador and Bolivia. So, so that's interesting. So I think it's, it's a great distinction that actually perhaps economically the forms of left populism that can succeed. You also said that on the political side, actually, there's real similarities. I think we all understand the degree of political oppression that is now going on in Venezuela and actually the violent quashing of some of the opposition protests, taking away power from the elected parliament and so on. What is that situation looking like in Bolivia and Ecuador? And how worried are you about the future development of those countries in light of that? It doesn't look nearly as bad as what you have in Venezuela. There has been a lot of erosion of the institutions in both of those countries. Like, let's not not forget that. So, so what does that look like? What does that mean? You know, for example, with the press, that's been the biggest example in Ecuador. Korea was very gung-ho on pushing for anti-defamation laws in the country, which he used to prosecute journalists. He went after personally after journalists that had written about him. Uh, he went after uh, news outlets saying that they had published things which uh, you know weren't true or were bad to his government, and he intimidated them, you know, full on. The same thing has happened uh, under Evo Morales, not as much under a legal framework. Uh, they didn't pass the same set of laws in Bolivia that they had in Ecuador, but you know, effectively, the country, you know, the government has been going after or buying up media outlets that they don't see as friendly. So you've had that, you've had the diminishing of the opposition, but because these countries both have had pretty sound economies, you haven't had the political opposition and the strong political opposition that you've had in Venezuela. You have to remember last year, the opposition was leading a drive that would have probably succeeded if it had been allowed to go forward to hold a recall vote 
against Maduro. Right. He stopped that. And then he's now gone on to try to you know, destroy the National Assembly, which was uh, one of the main promoters of the referendum to try to knock him out, and gone on to jail a lot of the opposition members. In these other countries I'm talking about, they, they haven't had that political crisis. So you haven't had the crackdown. And this political crisis and the crackdown, they almost all seem to stem from the fact that the economy is so bad in Venezuela. Once the economy starts to fall apart, that's when you see these governments starting to dip deeper and deeper towards authoritarianism as the leaders are, are trying to hold on to power. There's a positive and a negative way of reading this. I chuckled because I just came up with a sort of weird metaphor, which is when I think about Poland and Hungary. You know, those are countries where the government has undermined the media, has undermined the independence of certain institutions in ways that sound quite similar to what you're describing about Ecuador, for example. But they're still reasonably popular. And so they haven't had to go the full hog and political repression because there's simply no need for it, right? I mean, one of the strange things about this populist movement on the right and the left is that it clothes itself in the language of democracy. And so as long as the people actually support you, the contradiction in that doesn't become explicit. Now, I think there's a sort of Schrodinger's, you know, democracy moment where because the willingness of the political rulers to leave office peacefully hasn't been tested yet, it's really difficult to know where you're at in the country. Is Hungary still a democracy? Well, I think it depends a lot on whether or not the opposition would retain a decent chance of ousting Orban if they became popular enough. And we don't know that because we haven't been there. And it sounds to me like what you're describing in Ecuador and Bolivia is sort of similar, right? That perhaps the point is that the governments have been reasonably successful economically and they've done sort of fine. And yes, they undermine the media in certain ways. But in the end, if there's a real popular upsurge against them, maybe the economy goes really badly, people are going to say, you know what, we don't like these governments, we get rid of them. And we guys say, all right, fine, um, I'm not very happy to leave office, but I will. Or perhaps once there comes an economic crisis, whether because of mismanagement or just because of an economic downturn, once the people really do turn against the government, they will just crush it and eventually end up in a place that's much more similar to where Venezuela is today. I mean, do you think it's possible to know? Or are we really in a sort of Schrodinger's cat kind of situation? We've we got to wait for that moment to figure out whether we are in one state or the other. I think the, uh, the Schrodinger's cat analogy or another, which I heard long ago, which is that, you know, you don't know who's swimming naked in the ocean until the tide goes out yeah. uh, applies in this situation as well. And to some degree, I think America has seen a lot of things that it didn't understand about itself until this last election. So I can't really say. I'm not sure whether these countries, uh, the ones you know, we were just talking about, Bolivia and Ecuador, whether their democracy would survive a, a giant uh, economic downturn like you've seen in Venezuela. But that said, I think one barometer which you can see, one thing that you can use to tell whether there's the cat in the box or not, is not looking necessarily at those are, who are in power, but having a good look at what the opposition is in these countries and whether it's a credible opposition or not. And in Venezuela, what you were beginning to see was that the opposition had been very hollowed out even before this moment had, had started with the economic crisis. I would also say in Ecuador and Bolivia that the opposition is also very weak. 
But that said, Ecuador had an election this year, and uh, an opposition candidate was the one that made it to the second round. And for a while, people were wondering whether Guillermo Lasso, who was the candidate who was talking in very opposite terms from the populists in Ecuador, talking about tax cuts, talking about you know some of the more neoliberal rhetoric that you hear in other parts of the world. He was giving uh, Lenin Moreno a real run for his money. So I would say in Ecuador, there seems to be the parts that you would need to have a democracy and competitive elections. In Bolivia, I'm not exactly sure whether you have an opposition right now that could challenge Evo Morales and his movement. One of the things that you're seeing in Bolivia is a president who's been in power for a very long time at this point. He was uh, proposing last year to have another re-election for himself that would allow him to run for president in 2020, which would effectively have given him four terms. During that referendum, though, people came out and voted him down, which is something for the moment he's had to accept. So again, I'd say that there's some evidence in that country, too, that opposition to the current leadership is strong enough that you can say that there's probably still a cat in the box there. You don't really know until you've actually seen a change in power, though. Interesting. Yeah, and it sounds like we're we're coming up to that moment in 2020 when we'll see whether or not he is able to evade the term limits or whether he'll sort of accept that or perhaps, you know, find a handpicked successor. I mean, there's, there's lots of different paths so that could go. Obviously, you know, Venezuela has been in, in the headlines, and I'm sure that, that it's captured the imagination of Latin Americans outside of Venezuela. At the same time, as you've told us, there are these more positive examples, um, or at least less negative examples. What is the future of left populism in Latin America? Do you think that it's sort of deeply damaged by the experience in Venezuela and there's a sort of turn against it? That there's sort of a moment of a series of governments sort of being captured by left populists and so on is sort of on the wane? Or does it sort of retain its vital force and is going to continue to dominate some countries and influence broader Latin American politics for a long time to come? Well, I think um, when leftism started to really take over South America uh, again, you know, this was beginning in the 2000s, it wasn't all populism either. There were kind of more leftist Democrats that you saw in governments that you know came up in uh, Uruguay and Chile, for example. And then you had the the really, uh, you know, full-on uh, populists in places like Venezuela and, and even in Argentina. Yeah, I think, you know, the scorecard, what we can see at this point is that leftist populism is really not surviving in this area. And in the places that it's actually been challenged, it's actually had to turn into authoritarianism, which is what Venezuela is. On the other hand, I think that there is still a lot of hope for the leftist Democrats who are out there. It is possible that in the next election, Chile is going to switch over to a more conservative government. At the same time, it doesn't mean that like leftist uh, leftism there is going to go away. Uruguay remains in the hands of leftists. They're doing really interesting things like they passed a medical marijuana law. They're trying to institute it. They've legalized abortion there. They've also uh, allowed for gay marriage in Uruguay. So there have been you know, two competing strains of leftism in Latin America, one which uh, is more democratic and the other is more populist. The populist strain is having a lot of problems right now, frankly. And I think that could create openings for um, a more democratic strain, at least to have some successes in the country that it's in charge of, and maybe even to, to bounce over into some of the other countries too. You could see more moderate leftist leaders who are less populist one day 
uh, entering politics into into other countries, maybe even Venezuela one day. And is there a danger at the same time of sort of a left populism being followed by a right populism? And we see, uh, I mean, I don't think Temer is a, in Brazil is a, is a populist exactly, but you certainly can see the swing from a robust leftism that is a point and is often winds up being implicated in corruption and then, and then the result is a sort of pretty hard right government. I mean, do you think that that is something to worry about? Just to give some context, what I'm trying to think through what's going to happen, you know, in places like Greece if Syria fails, in places like Italy when Cinque Stelle might come to power and fail or in Spain if Podemos might come to power and fail. But also obviously what's going to happen in the United States once we hopefully get rid of Donald Trump. So, so I'm sort of, you know, trying to think through the Latin American experience in terms of Where does populism leave a polity? Is it sort of a return to a more moderate politics that gives greater importance to institutional norms and democratic rules and so on? Or does it lead to, you know, the return with a vengeance of a different forms of anti-establishment politics, which might be a different left populist who's like, you know, the last guy was bad, but I'm going to do the same kind of thing, but I'm just not as bad and corrupt as that guy. Does it lead to right populism or does it lead to this return to moderate politics? I think it's not likely that you're going to see a wave of right-wing populism in Latin America. And a lot of the reason for that is if you look in the past and see when the military dictators were in charge of, of these countries, it, it wasn't often because they had this huge support, popular support. It was very often because they were being supported by the United States and the most wealthy families in these countries. In the case of Temer getting control of Brazil, that wasn't a democratic process that brought him there. Um, that was a, a group of people in the Congress ganging up to, to oust Dilma hmm. and uh, put Temer in power. And he was deeply unpopular from the moment that he got in charge of that country. So, uh, you know, the one case that you do have the, the pendulum democratically swinging towards the right is with uh, with Macri in, in Argentina. And I wouldn't call him a populist. So I think, you know, what you're most likely to see in these countries is a swing towards a more democratic, moderate, conservative strain for some time, swinging you know, back and forth between moderate liberals and moderate conservatives in these countries and away from the more kind of extremist politics. And you have to remember actually Latin America in many of these countries was you know, had fairly moderate governments up until kind of Venezuela and a few other exceptions. So I, I don't I don't see that there's going to be like a permanent, very long pendulum swings between the right and the left in this region in the years that go ahead. We'll have to see them. Well, that's heartening. It's sort of, you know, I'm glad you're patting on the cat surviving, as it were. I spent a lot of time thinking about Italy. And in Italy, when you think about Silvio Berlusconi, for a long time, he seemed this weird aberration, right? Utterly bizarre figure, this sort of local billionaire who's larger than life, you know, had all of these economic scandals and, and soft forms of corruption, all of these sex scandals. And how on earth could they vote for him and sort of take him seriously? And it seemed like, you know, an indictment of Italian political culture specifically. And then you see somebody like Donald Trump, who, you know, resembles lots of different people in lots of different ways, but certainly has quite striking resemblance to to Silvio Berlusconi. And in retrospect, we can say, well, perhaps Berlusconi was actually a precursor of a certain kind of politics rather than an aberration. Now, similarly, looking at Latin America, you know, it's possible to think of the political culture of countries in Latin America as quite different from the rest of the world for a set of reasons. I mean, one, that they have historically had this this huge economic inequality, which is much bigger than, than other developed democracies by and large. Another, that it all sort of descends from the political culture of 
parts of southern Europe, Spain, and most the case of most of the continent, and you know Portugal, and the case of Brazil, and so perhaps that just led to a set of conditions which are quite different from everywhere else. And you had all of this left populism in the twentieth century, and in Spain, in a way that you really didn't have it in lots of other parts of the world. But there's also a way of reading Latin America as, again, not an aberration, but perhaps a precursor, right? We are now at Latin American levels of economic inequality in a lot of the United States, which is to say that the United States now is as unequal as a bunch of Latin American countries were 20 or 30 years ago. I, in my work, have looked a lot at you know, attitudes to democracy, the, the, the extent to which Americans are disappointed with democracy, the extent to which they're open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy, including things like army rule. And actually, America is now more or less at the level that Latin America was at 20 years ago, right? So do you think that there are aspects of a Latin American experience that you're starting to recognize in American politics or that you could imagine emerging in American politics in the years to come? Or do you think really the differences are so big that any attempt to look for clues for America's future in Latin America is sort of misguided from the start? No, I think the analogy is really important one and something that every American needs to take into account. When Americans who are in their 30s and 40s or in their 70s and 80s, whether they're going to see a country and live in a country which looks a lot more like Mexico than one that looked like the America of the 1950s. The biggest difference between the U.S. historically and Latin America has been the middle class. In the U.S., most of the population goes into the middle class, and that's where people are aiming to be. In Latin America, the middle class is extremely thin, is very powerless, and for that reason, it is the upper class, which is the driving force in the democracy, except for these moments where of populism, where, where often you have like the lower classes beginning to get in charge of the voting. This is a trend which I'm beginning to see, I think we're all are starting to see in the U.S., through things like Citizens United, through the fact that you have individual donors who have outsized power, through the fact that the cabinet right now in the U.S. is what they call classically in Latin America the oligarchy. You look into a lot of cabinets, a lot of governments in Latin America, and you see that these are the richest people who are running the country. Certainly the government of Temer in Brazil is equally white, equally male, equally rich, or probably a little less rich than Trump's, right? There's, there's striking similarities there. And historically, there have been always governments like Temer's government, which have been in charge of many of these countries. And it's only been to the last like 15 years that there's been a switch from that in places like Bolivia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. But the norm has often been to have the most rich people be in charge making the decisions. And often, sometimes the richest man in the country is the one who is the president. This is really concerning to me because this was never the case in the U.S. since, say, George Washington was the president when he used to be the richest man in America. But in the 20th century, the U.S. was extremely middle class. There was a pride in the middle class. And not only that, the middle class was able to defend its interests very well in the democracy in a way that in Latin America, because the middle class is so thin, they're essentially a, a non-player in many parts of the democracy, in, in many countries in their democracy. So yes, I, I agree completely. Latin America could be the future of where American democracy goes. And you also see that in the voting too, where you have more and more rational voting because lower and lower levels of education. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of a bunch of effects of the hollowing out of the middle class has, or the absence of the middle class in Latin America's case. I mean, one is that you just don't have enough people who have an interest in stability. Because 
things aren't going very well. So why would you want things to be stable? Let's let's try a radical experiment because how bad could things get? That's an instinct that I think a lot of Latin American voters have had for a long time, but more and more American voters have. And then the second is, you know, how do you rally people around the idea of defending democratic institutions and democratic norms when they say, but it doesn't feel like we live in a democracy, right? We're disempowered anyway. It's an oligarchy that gets to call the shots anyway. So what do you mean come and defend democratic norms? There's, you know, there's another analogy to Latin America, which I'd also add here, where America has started to head down, which actually has to do with the media, in that the U.S. had a much more robust an independent media than Latin America had historically, but it seems to be going in that direction. You go to Latin America, most Latin American countries, people will say, I don't trust what I see in the newspapers. I don't trust what I see on TV because I know that the business people own these channels and that they're trying to put their ideas onto me. That wasn't the case until recently in the U.S. You didn't have Fox News in the 1980s. In many countries, I can take you and show you what the state-run media channel is, that you can see a very clear propaganda arm uh, of television, which exists in Latin America, historically always has existed in many of these countries, but didn't exist until fairly recently. Open partisanism on television, open propaganda on TV, also, the idea of having you know moguls in charge of main media outlets, very common. It's far for the course here in Latin America. But when Rupert Murdoch, for example, bought the Wall Street Journal where I used to work, that was a huge moment that was very comparable to what's going on in Latin America. We have one man with clear business interests controlling one of the principal newspapers in the country. That was a huge red flag. But I don't think one that many Americans were able to take note of to the degree that they should have, because they don't know exactly how to deal with a country that the democratic norms are starting to come apart. They grew up in a place where none of these things were issues. So when the problems start to come up, it's much more difficult to identify them, other than having a look at the neighbors in Latin America that have been dealing with these same problems for, for decades. The point about the sort of broader conditions of when people are going to trust the media and trust the political system is a very deep one, I think. I mean, you know, a lot of the discussion about social media and, and, and hate speech and fake news at the moment is about, you know, what can Google do? What can Twitter do to, you know, limit their spread on the platform to either censor them outright or to sort of change the algorithm in such a way that it don't become so viral? And I think there's important things to be done there. But in the end, to me, this ends up being not a supply-side problem, it's a demand-side problem. You have to put the conditions in place so that people are saying, well, I don't believe this fake news because I have a sense of what's going on. I don't yeah. think that all of the political elites are corrupt. I actually care about not being hateful to people because I believe in the sort of norms of the system. And to make that happen, you have to actually make people feel satisfied in their political situation and make them feel like the economic system is responsive to them. We're not going to believe conspiracy theories when we see the government being responsive to them. And it's much easier to believe in conspiracy theories when you see the government being run by billionaires, right? So I think there's a, there's a deep connection there. Um, one other thing, I mean, as we're searching for these analogies and disanalogies, one obvious question is, what can we learn positively or negatively from the opposition to authoritarian populism in Latin America? What did the opposition in Venezuela do right or wrong? What did the opposition in countries that 
perhaps have managed to preserve democratic norms, even as left populists have had an influence. What, what can we learn from them for, for the United States and, and Europe? Venezuela doesn't give a very good example of, of a successful opposition. So you're much more looking at what the mistakes were. And they've so far been the mistakes of many oppositions that you've seen throughout the world, from Egypt to, you know, Ukraine to many of these countries where the opposition united under this banner of that they're going to oppose rather than present some sort of alternative plan. In Venezuela, you've got an opposition which includes everybody from what seems to be hard right-wingers to um, a, a party which which says it's actually itself from the left, Acción Democrática. And together, they're able to try to oppose Maduro. But, you know, if they were to govern, it would be very hard to say what they would do. And it would, they would probably lose the support of the people rather quickly. I think that the cases in Latin America where you have seen successful oppositions have been, again, where you have a strong middle class and you have both parties that are trying to remain somewhat in moderate positions where they can both try to agree on certain matters so they can work together. The problem, I think, in Latin America, as in other countries, is oppositions and governing parties that are trying to basically destroy the legacies of the previous government. And that's where you start to have like a spiral that the country isn't getting out of. It's also something that you're beginning to see in the United States with Trump trying to undo, you know, almost everything that Obama got involved in. And that's a pattern which Latin America knows for years, where you have one government instituting reforms and another government undoing them. Where you get after 30 years is about the same point that you, you started out 30 years before. That's really interesting. So it's actually not just a question of how to win elections, which is around being united and so on. It's also a question about how do you then govern in a way that is actually responsive to the underlying grievances in such a way that it doesn't just sort of become you know, a back and forth, which Latin America has been, right? I mean, as you were saying, sort of there was a few decades where left populism had really died out. But when you look at a slightly broader view over the last century, it's kept going through these phases. And so, so it's a matter of trying to find this sort of stable settlement, which is really difficult when you don't have a middle class to militate for it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that, for me, has often been a driving force of American democracy, is having a, a middle class. If you've looked at the history of American democracy from the point that it started, when there wasn't much of a middle class, voters were all white male landowners in the beginning. And the move towards democracy in the U.S. has always been broadening the electoral base, broadening the middle class, and broadening the vote. And the problem in Latin America is that, you know, you have very narrow groups of people who are in charge. As I said before, I think that's this getting similarly reflected in the U.S. right now at this point. So what's the number one thing that people who don't know Latin America so well should take away from its experience that either can help our understanding of what's going on in, say, North America or, or help our understanding of what we should do now? I think it is that especially in the case of Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez is a person who came out of a democracy, set up a new government, handed that government over to a successor who was supposedly following a similar plan, and now you clearly have a dictatorship. And I think the lesson that you get from Venezuela is very clearly this. 
dictatorships come out of democracies. It does not have to be a group of men with aviator glasses and guns coming out of their military barracks and taking over things in a coup. You can have a dictatorship emerge directly out of a democracy, directly after election after election, as people pick more and more authoritarian leaders. And those authoritarian leaders discover that they're not going to face frontal opposition to what they're doing. And this applies not just to the U.S., but to any country, that these democracies need to be on alert for authoritarian candidates who are insinuating themselves into the the system and are going to use the rules of the system to undo the system that, that brought them into power. And that very much was the case in the experience of Venezuela. And that could be the case experience of many other countries, including the U.S. right now. But I think you see very clear example in Latin America of, of that happening. And I think it's a very good object lesson to anyone looking out from their own democracies, whether it's in the U.S. or in Europe. Uh, there couldn't be a better stopping point for this conversation. Nick, thank you so much for all of your insights and for being on the show. Well, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Go to a baseball game. Get on the kiss cap and the moment that thousands of people are seeing you kiss your partner, whip out a sign advertising The Good Fight podcast. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.